Uh, the last time I had the privilege to be here was on the 29th of January, and I know a lot of you know exactly that that is 16 weeks ago and that we have spent 16 weeks in the book of Job. Um, one of the challenges we have with the book of Job is to keep perspective because we get drawn into so much detail in all these back and forth speeches between Job and his friends is that we kind of get lost in the forest sometimes and we have to step back and just have a look at what's happening. The repetitiveness of the speeches is a challenge and as we've seen, the reason that we look at this detail is so that we can discern that Job's friends have all been wrong. They've been clinging to the wrong theology. But we can say the same about Job. Job has been inconsistent as well. We saw last week that in chapter 28, Job seems to be spot on with inspired words about wisdom. But then two chapters later, in chapter 31, Job is back looking at himself, completely focused on his own heart, his own innocence. And so how, how do we make sense of what's happening in the book of Job? The question we've been grappling with from day one, or every reader of the book of Job, is does Job have a problem? God declares him righteous and upright, but yet he suffers. So the question we need to get a handle on is, is there a problem in Job's heart? And if we can answer that question with clarity, the whole book of Job suddenly takes a very specific direction. And everything in the book of Job starts to have a lot of purpose, very specific purpose. So in my opinion, the book of Job, and specifically the section we're looking at today, the Elihu speeches, is pivotal in really understanding what God is saying to us, how God is speaking to us through the book of Job. So like I said, the question we have to really get a handle on is does Job have a problem? Job's three friends is convinced that Job does have a problem. They point to his suffering as evidence that he has a problem. But they cannot tell him specifically what the problem is. They point to the evidence and say, Job, you've sinned, but they cannot tell him what sin he's done. So we're going to attempt to answer this question today in the book of uh, Job chapter 32 and 33, and we're going to hear Elihu speaking. But the question, uh, sorry, the message today is really a message of two words. And that's simply Jesus saves. The town where my grandmother used to live is in Benoni. And about four blocks from her house, there was a Pentecostal church and they had a huge neon sign on the roof that said, Jesus saves. And I've never been to that church, but each time we went to visit, I saw that sign. You may remember. <laughs> Danica knows Benoni. 
So what I want you to kind of put in your mind's eye is a big neon sign across here saying, Jesus saves. And I'll tie back to that a little bit later. Please pray with me before we start. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise and glorify your name as our Creator and our Savior this morning. Lord, we pray that the life-giving truth recorded in Job will be opened up today for us through your Holy Spirit. We pray that you give us ears to hear and open, receiving, and humble hearts. Lord, I pray you will move among us this morning and renew us and encourage us. In Jesus' almighty name, amen. So some of you might remember um, in January that I've expressed the blessing that the book of Job has been to me personally and the physical condition I went through. But at the time, I did not share with you that I also went through quite a substantial business and financial event in that same two-year period that also, um, I think, even drove me further to the end of myself where I was feeling like Job, that I'm at the end of, of, you know, at the verge of a cliff about to lose everything. And so perhaps you have come here this morning with some hurt on your heart. Perhaps you've come with unresolved conflict or unforgiveness or argument between family members. Perhaps you're here for the first time or the second time this morning looking for something bigger, looking for meaning, looking for answers to this really difficult life, this world that we live in that is broken. And as you reflect on this, I want to ask you, what do you think your words would be if you know you are about to meet your maker? What's the first thoughts that bubble up in your heart? What is the most important thing you think you'd want to say? Would you start with maybe something along the law, the Ten Commandments? I did not lie, I did not steal, did not commit adultery. The list goes on. Perhaps I didn't gossip, I didn't put my trust in money. I looked after the people well that worked with me or that served with me. I always attended church. I was serving in the church. For us parents, I raised my children well. It's not my fault they make these decisions. How far does your heart go when presented with this question? What if you were to meet your maker today? What would you say? It's a deep question. And as you think about this, can I suggest that if, if we, me and you, like Job, formulate our question, starting with, because I, because I did not lie, I did not steal, I did not murder, I did not do this or that, then I'm afraid something terrible has gone wrong. And this 
conversation before your maker is not going to end well. Because the real answer, the correct answer, starts with because He, because God, because our Father, because Jesus, because the Holy Spirit. That is where our heart needs to be at the instant that we think about this question. What would we say if we have to give account for our every step before our maker? Because he. A few months ago, before the service, I shared a, a, a story from Alistair Begg about the man on the, on the cross, the thief on the cross, the man in the middle. So just very briefly, the thief that's on the cross next to Jesus, as he dies, he arrives in heaven at the gates, and the angel says to him, Righto, welcome, what are you doing here? And the guy says to the angel, let's call the angel Ben, he says to him, well, I don't know, I just arrived here. And the angel says to him, well, excuse me, that doesn't happen. You, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I don't know. The one moment I was alive and now I'm here. And he says, well, sorry, it doesn't work that way. This is un unusual. I'm going to call my supervisor. So he goes away. He calls the supervisor, angel. Let's call him Mark. So Mark comes. And he says, hello, sir. No worries, we'll get this thing sorted out very quickly. Just a few questions. How clear are you on the, just, on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the guy has a blank look on his face. He's got no idea. Sorry, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. And the supervisor says, okay, how about the doctrine of the Trinity. He says, I, I don't know even what that word means. I don't know. And so after a little while and in frustration, the supervisor says, well, so we're going to have to establish on what basis are you here? And he says to him, listen, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. So do you see, it's because he, because the man on the middle cross said so. That's where our hearts needs to be. And to correctly understand Job, and as we enter into chapter 32 and 33, I've spent this little bit of time to just get you to this point that we understand what God has wanted from us from the start. And this is also the reality for Job. If we look back at Job 31, we see that, again, as we step back from the book of Job, chapter 31 is the last opportunity Job has before his encounter with God in chapter 38. So it's Job's last words. And what does he choose to do with his last words? In chapter 31... Job chooses to defend himself. He chooses to proclaim his innocence. He chooses to point to his righteous deeds 
all the things he's done, how well he looked after his servants and the poor. So Job is justifying himself. Even though two chapters earlier, we hear this amazing truth from Job about wisdom in chapter 28. So Job's closing argument is to defend himself, to say, I'm innocent. Okay, so it's with this context that we now arrive at Job 32. So I'll be going through a few verses there. I invite you to open your, your Bible and follow with me. Verse 1. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. Some of the translations use wrathful, much heavier language than just being angry. But what we find here is a surprise appearance of the narrator again. Do you notice that? The narrator left us in chapter 2. And for the last 30 chapters... We've just been hearing from Job and his three friends. And I think a lot of you would be leaping for joy to hear that this section actually brings this long period of conversation to an end. It brings it to a close. As Elihu starts to speak. But the insights of the narrator is, is very helpful and it's key for us to understand what's happening here. As it was in chapter 1 and 2, remember the narrator gave us a look behind the scenes to help us understand what's happening. He's now doing the same thing. We are given insight into something that Job or his friends is not able to see yet. He starts by saying Job was righteous in his own eyes. Verse 1. But that doesn't conclusively mean that Job is righteous or self-righteous because it's spoken from the friend's perspective. So the, the three friends are saying, Job didn't want to listen to us. He's wise or righteous in his own eyes. But we've taken the last 14 weeks to establish that the three friends were actually wrong. They were holding to the wrong theology so it's fair enough to say, Job, you don't have to listen to them because they're wrong. But then we get further insight in verse 2 where he says, Job was justifying himself rather than God. So how does this change the angle of where Job's heart is at? Job is not focused on his innocence and just proving the friends were wrong about God. He's proving the friends are wrong about him. He's not worried about how they're wrong about God. He's worried about how they're wrong about him and about his innocence. Can you see that from the, the narrators giving us this insight that Job 
his heart is focused on himself. So from the narrator's perspective at least, we can say he's saying Job is self-righteous. He's giving us this insight and now Elihu is going to start speaking and we'll see what Elihu shares with us. He continues in verse 3, he was also angry with the three friends because they have had no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he was. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So Elihu was angry. But we shouldn't make the mistake to think that he's an angry, arrogant young man. I've, had, I've read a lot of commentaries coming to that conclusion. And for that reason, they say, Elihu is no different to the three friends. Elihu points to the, you know, the, the folly of youth. But think about the context. And while I've taken a bit of time to explain to you the 16 weeks we've been here, Elihu's been quiet for 16 weeks. He's been patient. He's been listening to everything Job and his three friends have been saying. That doesn't come across as somebody that's angry and that cannot control his emotion. I think it points more to a righteous type of anger. A lie who's angry because none of them have justified God. So Elihu now starts to speak in verse 6. In verse 7 he says, I'm young and I've been quiet because I respect your older age. He continues in verse 8 and he says, But it's the breath of the Almighty that gives me life. It's the breath of the Almighty that prompts me to stand up and speak. He confirms this again in verse 18. And he says, it's not only the old that is always wise. You guys approach life with this transactional theology that it's always this way or that way. But Elihu is saying, no, sometimes the young can also be wise. Verse 11, I waited while you were speaking. I listened carefully to what you were saying. I gave you my full attention, verse 12. But none of you have found wisdom. So you can kind of nearly hear the frustration or the sense of urgency in Elihu, saying, I sat here for 14 weeks listening to you guys back and forth, justifying yourselves. But none of you were right. It's my turn to speak, verse 17. It's my turn to bring you what's on my heart. And he concludes in verse 19 saying, I'm like, I'm like a bottled up wine skin that is ready to burst. It's filled up over 14 weeks, but I'm now ready to let go. And this, with all this background, we arrive at chapter 33. 
And it's good to have context. Like I said, with the book of Job, it's the easiest to lose the wood from the trees or the forest from the trees. So chapter 33, verse 1. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. So Elihu, where he addressed Job and his three friends in chapter 32, is now focusing on Job completely. I'm about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. So similar to chapter 32, verse 8 and 18, he again confirms that it's the breath of the Almighty that propels him forward, that prompts him to stand up against the cultural rules of the day and to speak against these older men. Verse 5, Answer me then if you can. Stand up and argue your case before me. I am the same as you in God's sight. I too am a piece of clay. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy on you. So Elihu positions himself as an equal to Job. Not above or below. But he's also positioning himself to facilitate communication between Job and God. And ironically, this is what the three friends were trying to do, or they thought they were doing. They thought they were facilitating communication between Job and God. But they failed because they had the wrong theology. They had the wrong understanding of the nature of God. Verse, verse 8. But you have said in my hearing, I hear the very words, I am pure. I have done no wrong. I am clean and free of sin. Yet God has found fault with me and considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. So Elijah is saying to Job, Job, here, I'll prove to you that I've listened all this time. And he gives a short summary Exactly pointing to Job's heart. Job's heart, I am pure. I have done no wrong. I am clean and free from sin. Do you see chapter 31? That's exactly where Job is. And Elijah who's pointing straight to it because he's been patiently listening all this time. And not just listening, but understanding. Like Mark said in the children's talk, we have two ears and one mouth. We have to listen twice as long as what we speak. And Elihu has done that. And in doing this with Job, Elihu is building rapport. Now, in, in corporate training, you are trained. There's ways in which you build rapport with somebody. And you do that for the reason or for the purpose of building ultimately trust. But it's also something you do to break down barriers in communication. And so Elihu's doing this. He's breaking down these barriers. He proceeds in verse 12 and says, But I tell you, Job, in this you are not right. 
for God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? Or an alternative translation is, why do you complain that he does not answer for any of his actions? So what exactly is Elihu saying here to Job? He's saying, Job, you're wrong. And he first says to him, you're wrong, God is bigger. That's Job's first problem. Job, God is bigger. You are wrong, Job. You are not hearing God because God is bigger. You are wrong, Job. You are not hearing what God is saying because you're too focused on yourself. And we arrive now at Elihu's critical point, verse 12. He says, because God speaks. Verse 14. For God does speak. He speaks now one way, now another. No man perceives it. So although we do not always perceive it, it doesn't mean God is not speaking. And there's various ways in which God speaks. Like Mark has listed in the children's talk. Elihu is saying to him, Job, you are the problem, not God. Job, you are not hearing God because you are not listening. Does this remind you of a phrase from last week? If God feels distant, guess who moved? If we are not sensing Jesus and the prompts of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we need to look at our own spiritual deafness first. Before we point the finger at the church, or God's people, or to God. Elihu continues in verse 15, he says, In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings, to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. I know we're all pretty calm here, but my heart is jumping. This is exciting stuff. And if nothing else, in your spirit, jump up and down. Jesus saves. God speaks to us every day in multiple ways. Can you see the connection with our New Testament reading this morning from Hebrews? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times, in various ways. But today, in this day, today, Sunday, God is speaking to us. He's speaking to you through His Son. Jesus is speaking this morning. The same Jesus through whom He made the whole universe. He's speaking to you at a personal level, not at a corporate church level, He's speaking to you personally. And I do not think Elihu here is referring to an audible voice. Although God can speak with an audible voice, I don't think as a rule he does. And this is not what Elihu is pointing to here. Elihu is also not pointing to revelatory kind of speaking. In other words, 
revelation that equals Scripture. That's not what Elihu is saying. Elihu is pointing to a very, a very personal type of communication and how Jesus speaks to us in our lives. And of course, we're looking at this through the shadow of the cross. And we understand that everything in the Old Testament is Christ concealed. And today for us, it's Christ revealed. So this personal kind of conversation that Eli is pointing to is the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit renewing our minds and our hearts. Is it not true that your whole perception of truth changes? You see the world completely different. But it's not just up here. It's also a heart of flesh that all of a sudden starts to love God's people, have empathy with all the suffering in the world, but above all, a heart that loves God and His Word and His truth. And through this speaking, God is also forming and molding your conscience. How can we go from a position where we love sin and we chase after sin and when we find Jesus, all of a sudden we are repelled from those things that we once loved because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Lord molds your conscience and he informs your conscience. The other reason I say that this is not revelation or revelatory kind of speaking is because Elihu says it in the next verse. He says in verse 17, the reason is to turn us from wrongdoing. God speaks to us and he warns us to turn us from the pit. And the, the word in Hebrew here is shul. So it means physical death, but also spiritual death. So the purpose of God speaking, yes, it's to warn us of eternal danger and eternal damnation. But there's also a sense in which God is warning us and saving us physically in this life. So to summarize, Job is not being faulted for not trusting in God. A lie who's making the case here, Job is faulted for not hearing God, for not listening to God's word, speaking to him. And this is all good, but how do we apply it to our situation today? How do we get this to a big neon sign saying Jesus saves? The days are coming, declares the Lord from Jeremiah, when I will make a new covenant. It will not be like the old covenant, because in the new covenant, they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. We are in the new covenant. And God says we will all know him. So the reason for Job's blindness or his deafness is not because he's busy losing his salvation. 
It's because his heart has drifted away from his first love. And he chooses to argue for the things that's important to him. His innocence. So in our context of today, he's arguing for his children, for his career, for his hobbies, for the things that he likes to do, for the things that he's done right, for all the the injustice that's ever been done to him. But if God feels distant, guess who moved? If God feels distant, if God seems silent, guess who's not listening? Elihu continues in verse 19. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones so that their body finds food repulsive, their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing, and their bones, once hidden, now stick out. They draw near to the pit, and their life to the messengers of death. So the second way Elihu's sharing here with Job is suffering, physical suffering. And this must hit a lot closer to home for Job, because that's exactly where Job's at. He's physically suffering. And I wanted to share a testimony with you this morning and with her approval. Um, A couple of years ago, we have a thing on the vineyard where my dad's dug a big pit and they throw all the rubbish in there and then once a year we throw petrol over and set it alight and it becomes a big blazing pit, just burning clippings from the, the vineyard, pieces of wood, whatever goes in there. And at the beginning of last year, this pit has been going for about an hour and a half, two hours. And for some unexplained reason, my mother tripped and she fell into this pit. And as she slid down the slope of the pit, she just recalls kind of putting out her arm to shield her face from the, the hot fire and she ended up in the pit. And she laid there and it felt like an eternity until my dad, and I must say to you, my dad's 76, he just had a knee replacement. So how he got into the pit and pulled my mum out is a miracle in itself. But needless to say, she suffered significant burns on her, her arm, her side, the side of her face, her neck. And through the recovery, you can imagine that's very painful. But the day that I want to share with you is because she had such significant burns in, during the recovery, the skin wasn't covering um, the arm and the side enough, so they had to put skin grafts on. And to put the, the grafts on, they used these staples to keep the skin to where it needs to be. So that's all, I mean, we, we can all imagine that's painful. But the day that she went into the hospital to have these staples removed, she kind of went to the doctor's table and the nurses around her with her arm on the table and she was sitting on a chair. And just from the very first moment that they started removing the bandages, she just, this is the worst pain even from, from the burn. And as they took the first staple out, she was nearly fainting from the pain. She was just saying for some reason, 
that day was immense. It was such intense pain. And she started praying. And she said, Jesus, why? It's so painful. I cannot bear it. And she was with her arm here on the table, with her head down, and her eyes was closed, and she opened her one eyes. And she looked on the floor next to her, and she saw two feet that had sandals on, leather strap sandals, and a white, what would you call it, garment. And she sensed in her heart, Jesus was saying, Linda, you're not alone. I'm here. And each time they took a staple out, she squeezed her hand. But she said she wasn't squeezing her hand. She was holding on to Jesus' hand. And I get emotional when I think about this because there's, there's no more honest person that I know than my mother. Some of you have met my mother. But there's purpose for her suffering. And one of it is, I think, this testimony. And this amazing supernatural thing of how God speaks to us personally when we call on Him. Elihu says in verse 23, If there's an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to them, to tell them how to be upright. And he's gracious to that person. And he says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Again, looking through the cross, who can this possibly be? This person, this messenger, that speaks to God and says, spare them. I've got the ransom. It's Jesus. Do you start seeing the neon sign at the back? Is it glowing a bit brighter? That's Jesus. He's the messenger for us. He's speaking to God saying, spare them because I've paid the ransom. I've paid the price. Our debt has been paid. Let their flesh be renewed, verse 25, like a child's. Let them be restored in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with Him. They will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being. So through Jesus, we can pray to the Father again. We have access to God the Father through what Jesus has done. He's restored us. He's restored our internal, sorry, our eternal well-being. Our eternal well-being received a fatal blow in the garden with Adam. So our sin is inherent, but Jesus has prepared that. He's healed that condition eternally. And then they that were saved, verse 27, will go to others and say, I have sinned, I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. 
God has delivered me from going down to the pit. And I shall live to enjoy the light of life. This is the Christian testimony. We heard this a few weeks ago when Sonia took up membership. We hear a testimony each time someone takes membership. Each one of you have a testimony. If you have found Christ, you have a testimony. And we have to say this to others. This is why I shared my mother's testimony and mine. Because we have to say to each other, not only is the truth of Scripture real in our heads, it's not just academic knowledge that we can understand, but it's truth that we experience. It's here. And it's when the head and the heart connects that we start hearing God speaking in our lives, that the deafness disappears, the blindness disappears. Verse 29, God does all these things to a person twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. So God will do this multiple times, but not many, many times. There's a limit. So this shows God's mercy, but it's also a warning. How many times have you heard the gospel? How many times have you had a messenger speak to you about Christ? God speaks to us twice, even three times, to warn us to turn from our paths. But fear the day when God stops speaking, because then his warnings is over. We do not have the rest of our lives to listen and to turn and to hear him. This neon sign is loudly calling. Jesus saves. Verse 31, pay attention. You hearing this this morning, pay attention. Elihu's saying to Job, Job, pay attention. Listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me, speak up, for I want to vindicate you. But if not, listen. Be silent and I will teach you. And what I hear Elihu saying here to Job is, Job, you've had so many arguments for your own innocence. Just get it out. If you still have anything pent up, speak now. Just get it out so that you can get to the end of yourself. Isn't that us? When we hear a truth in Scripture, we want to answer by saying, but yes, I, does the Bible really say that? Yes, but. Yes, but. Elihu's saying, get all the yes, buts out of your system. Speak up, get it out. Because as soon as we can stop answering God back, we can start listening. We built that way. When we're speaking, we're not really great at hearing. Elihu's saying to Job, Job, you've not reached the end of yourself yet. 
And until you do, you are not going to hear God speaking to you. A lie who's preparing Job for his encounter with God. A lie who understands Job's, sorry, Job's condition. And he points right to the heart of the problem in two chapters. What has taken the friends and Job 31 chapters. A lie who points to it, wraps his head around it, kind of nearly with a tie on it, saying, Job, here's the problem. And a lie who's not doing that because he himself is clever, he says, no, this is God's truth. It's God-breathed. God gives me this understanding. So God speaks to us today for the purpose of saving. He speaks to us through His Son. Jesus saves. This neon sign is bright and it's red and it's shining consistently. Wherever you go, imagine this sign above your head saying, Jesus saves. He's the only one that saves. And what do we see in the book of Job? What has happened or... What's the condition before Job 1 verse 1? We have a lovingly sovereign God that loves his servant and has his servant on his heart. And that servant is Job. And there's something in his servant's heart that God wants to sanctify. And then it's Job 1 verse 1. And all of Job plays out. And we forget that even before the start of the book, there's a lovingly sovereign Savior that is speaking to you this morning, saying, I love you. There's, there's roots of sin in your life. I've paid the ransom. Hear me when I speak. Do not focus on yourself. Like with my mother, when we are in the deepest pits of our pain, when we focused on Christ, he makes the pain bearable because God is big. Our pain is not that big. Jesus saves. Amen. Thank you, sisters. Um, I think we invite the musicians up now for a song of worship again. Thank you. Please stand. <laughs>